All right, welcome back, everyone. Welcome to Politics and Perspective, Episode 6. I'm Taylor Wong, joined, as always, by Cole Reynolds. And I'm back, obviously, after a week-long break. If you didn't catch last episode, go check it out. Cole is joined by History and Expos teacher Mark Schneider. They had a really good discussion about kind of recapping the elections with a specific lens on California politics and their propositions that we voted on. Um, and yeah, we have a lot of fun stuff planned this week, too. Um, we'll be joined by a special guest in a few minutes. And obviously, we're going to have to recap the election because we haven't really done that yet. Um, and yeah, cool. Um, let's get into it, I guess. Obviously, since we've last met, Joe Biden was declared the winner of the presidency. Um, I think he ended up bearing barring recount changes. He'll probably end up with 306 electoral votes, um, which is obviously a lot more than you predicted. <laughs> so I guess I want to know, like, what went wrong with your predictions? Well, look, my predictions... They were wrong. Okay, they were they were wrong. My predictions were wrong. I was at Trump in the two eighty to two ninety range of electoral votes. That was my prediction, but my methodology behind it was solid. Look, I theorized that there would be somewhere between a three to six point swing towards Trump in the polls that we were seeing, right? And I chose to make my prediction on the Trump end of the spectrum, the five point swing, the six point swing, even the four point swing. That would have made a Trump uh, winner, but we saw that it was a little less in some key states, more like a three-point or so swing uh, towards Trump. Or so that means still, still Biden kept the lead. Um, so I, I, I was right in that the polls were going to be way off. I was right that there wouldn't be a blue wave, um, but I just underestimated, uh, or I overestimated how many, how much the polls would swing actually towards Biden. You uh, made a pretty solid electoral map, though. Yeah, um, I think I, I, my, my final prediction had Biden with 322 votes, so I think I missed North Carolina only. But yeah, I mean, I might have been a, lo- a little overestimate, a, over, yeah, I might have exceeded expectations a little bit in terms of my predictions. But uh, I think I got the Sun Belt accurate, which a lot of people... A lot of people were kind of skeptical of, considering it hasn't been Democrat in so long, like states like Arizona and Georgia. So I think I was accurate in that department. But yeah, like Cole said, I think this election was closer than a lot of people want to say. Um, it was really only a few thousand votes in each of these swing states could have turned it either way. So Cole, Cole was definitely right in that the polls shifted a lot towards Trump. And I don't know, the Democrats got a little lucky in a way. It was a lot closer than they would have wanted. And that they didn't get lucky in the Senate and the House, just huge losses there, especially in key states. Like the polls were looking like Lindsey Graham was out. They were looking like the Georgia races would be won handily by Democrats. They were looking like um, they might even pick up a seat in Iowa. Um, Obviously, none of those happened. Jamie Harrison, who was going against Lindsey Graham, got blown out. So it did wasn't uh, even Amy close. McGrath against Mitch McConnell. Yeah, she's not she's not great, I have to say. But um, but the candidate that she was running against in the primaries, Charles Booker, was a progressive, very popular, um, uh, progressive from Louisville, I think it was. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously he lost the primaries, but just by a little margin with exponentially less money than Amy McGrath did. And I'm wondering what the viability of progressives are in these elections, in the presidential election or 
in these more local Senate oh, and House races? That's a very tough question. I guess first I start with the Booker race. I, I obviously think Booker would have been a better pick. Um, Agreed. Part of the reason why he lost is because he kind of came. He came out of nowhere so late. He kind of came, rose up in the wake of the Breonna Taylor killing and the protests that happened in Louisville, his hometown. Um, and I think if he had kind of started or been more viable earlier, I think he would have won ultimately. But it goes to show. It goes to show you. It's kind of a trend that voters need a candidate that they'll be excited by. People like Charles Booker inspired a lot of people. McGrath was kind of seen as the safe choice. Um, and I think ultimately that's what made the general election like not that close. People weren't really excited to vote for Amy McGrath. People would have been excited to vote for Booker. I don't know if Booker wins. I think Booker makes it a lot closer. Um, but in terms of what you talked about, the progressive movement. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of people out there who will say, oh, Bernie, Bernie would have handily won. And I don't know if I'm one of those people. I'd like to think so, but it's kind of wishful thinking because no progressive's ever been in a nationwide race before. So like, like a single day nationwide race. So no one actually knows how progressives will do. So to both sides, Bree saying, oh, Bernie would have easily won or, oh, Bernie would have gone destroyed. Like, there's really no way to know until a progressive enters like a presidential race or something like that. Um, I do think that the vote was not really pro-Biden as much as anti-Trump. Um, so Biden, again, like I talked about with Amy McGrath, Biden wasn't getting, like, Biden wasn't getting a lot of, like, people like, oh, I want to vote for Joe Biden. It's more of, I want to vote against Donald Trump. So... I guess my hypothesis, I want to say that like a leftist candidate might have retained that similar support from never Trumpers, but he would have also gotten a new, they would have also gotten a new group of people who kind of sat out the election, like people on the far left who didn't, weren't excited by either candidate. Not just in this election though, what about moving forward when there isn't a bo- boogeyman like a Trump to go against, to vote against, will a progressive capture enough moderate support um, from the left to uh, overcome uh, the other candidate, I think I think they I think they certainly can. I think it there's a lot of factors. I think unfortunately, the candidates' race and gender are probably big factors because we've seen how, for example, AOC gets completely demonized by the Republicans on Fox News and stuff. So unfortunately, right now, I think a candidate's race and gender will actually have a bit a big effect on how they perform. Um, hopefully, down the line, that won't that will change. Um, but I think kind of kind of echoing off what I said before, like these moderate people aren't, I think they're voting because they despise Trump. So if a candidate other than Biden is running, I think they'll vote for that other candidate just based on their pure hatred for Trump, which I think will get progressives a lot of support. And also, I think they'll do way be- a lot better with Latinos, particularly in Texas. Texas, you saw a lot of border counties who voted for Clinton by 30-something points flipped to Trump. I think prog- progressives maintains a lot of support down there. Um, that's just one example. I think they lose Florida, obviously, but that's kind of a lost cause. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I I think progressives should target more a growing caucus in the Senate and House is where they should target because look, I think there's a stat that came out that every progressive or every candidate in a swing district who was running for the House who signed on to Medicare for All won, except I think one district. So. Clearly, the progressive ideology is growing. It's getting more popular. And um, it might be time to move away from the blue wall base of the Democratic Party into a, into a Sunbelt um, coalition where progressive ideas are, are more palatable to the voters there. Um, the, do you think, what do you, so there's a huge 
rift between the progressives and this Democratic establishment right now in the House. You can look at the conference call between AOC, um, Rashida Tlaib, actually all that House of Representatives that got way super heated between the two sides Mm -hmm. with each side blaming each other for the losses. Um, Actually, the establishment blaming the progressives for the losses and the progressives defending themselves. What is your take on either side? Shouldn't blame the progressives. Um, I, I don't think that's uh, one. I don't think it's true, and two, I don't think it's a smart campaign strategy because you're alienating a lot, pe- a lot of people, especially as a lot of Gen Z voters like myself will reach voting age in the next couple of years um, and start to support these progressive issues because there's a lot of progressives my age. Um, but I, I don't think I don't think it's the progressives' fault. I think progressives actually rallied around Joe Biden pretty well, and it would have been very interesting to see if moderates had done that in the same way if Bernie got. If Bernie won the nomination, right? I don't, I don't know if that happens. Like for all their criticizing of Bernie, to oh, coming back, Joe, would they have backed Bernie? Good question. Exactly. But I want. What, what do you think? Well, I, I don't think my after this election, my my working theory is that a progressive candidate would not win a presidential election. I just don't think there's enough support there yet. I think though, progressive. They sh- progressives should focus on building um, a co- building a grassroots coalition, especially down in the Sun Belt, uh, and pick up some House seats, pick up some maybe even a Senate seat. That would be a big uh, win. Um, next election cycle, there's a lot of opportunities in 2022, uh, which might not work just due to historical trends. But uh, next election cycle, they should definitely Progressives should focus on picking up um, a lot more House seats and some Senate seats because uh, that kind of that's the that's the transition towards an eventual presidential candidate. Yeah, I mean, we saw it this year with Ed Markey beating Joe Kennedy, the, one of the Kennedy dynasty in Massachusetts. Um, he was obviously very progressive, backed by a lot of progressive groups. He co-sponsored the Green New Deal. So, you know, obviously he was an incumbent, which is a little different. But I think that sets a trend. I think that. Kind of sets a fair sets a fair precedent that about the progressive movement in these statewide races. I think I think there's hope. Definitely, we will see. Definitely, definitely, and um, and look, the Democrats don't. The Democrats have a bigger problem than the progressives. They have a bigger problem than even losing House seats or probably losing the Senate majority, which we'll get to later. Um, and even bigger than the Supreme Court or the presidential transition, and that's actually the state legislatures. Look, we just had the census in 2020, and um, with each census, the new, uh, the the incoming um, state legislators legislatures get to draw the political districts. They get to redistrict their states according to the political census. Now. Redistricting is how gerrymandering happens in the United States. And if you look at some states, Wisconsin, North Carolina, these states are controlled by Republican legislatures and they're ridiculously gerrymandered. So um, that means they can pick up so many more House seats um, than they have voters. Um, So the Democrats lost big, big in the state legislatures, and they are far from a majority. So they're going to have no say in how to redistrict each state. 
which will have long will have implications for the next decade, which is when we'll have the next census and the next redistricting period. Um, what what do the Democrats do now? You think? Well, here's here's the thing, which is kind of horseshit, but. If Democrats get control of the state legislatures, I'm certain that they will gerrymander just as much as Republicans do because it's politics. It's competitive. You want to win as many seats as possible. So for all of these Democrat cries of gerrymandering, I think they will do the same thing. Like I saw a tweet that said, oh, here's a redrawn map of Illinois that the Democrats could get like 14 seats, the Republicans three or something. So it's not unique to Republicans. And I think it kind of goes to show you that Districts should be drawn by independent commissions. That's the only fair way to do it. That's what we have in California. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we have in California, and we have pretty non-gerrymandered districts and competitive races. We had a lot of competitive races this cycle, and I think that's kind of what it should be like in every state. Um, but what do the Democrats do? I think they have to try to take it to the court as much as possible because we saw in Pennsylvania that the court ruled against Republicans. So even if, I, I don't remember if they had a majority there, but. I feel like even I feel like some Republicans will definitely swing to favor re- independent redistricting in terms of gerrymandering. Um, so that's my that's my suggestion. Which not some, but not all. Trump is supposed to get a dozen new judges um, appointed by the time he leaves office. Um, well, I was talking about the state Supreme Court. Yeah, but um, but it just goes to show that the the. Supreme Courts and all the court systems are just ridiculously packed right now, full of conservatives. One of the conservatives um, on a on the, the Supreme Court, Samuel Alito, uh, just said came out against COVID restrictions. Now, I think, in my personal opinion, this is totally ridiculous. This is totally unprofessional. He says the pandemic has resulted in previously unimaginable restrictions on individual liberty. We have never before seen restrictions as severe, extensive, and prolonged. And he says that they should strike it down, the Supreme Court. What What is the Supreme Court doing? Like, what are they doing, I mean, honestly? They're, cl- they're clowns. Like, it's kind of the nice way to put it. They've lost all legitimacy. I did see a little bit of hope in that Kavanaugh and Roberts came out and said that they wouldn't strike down the Affordable Care Act, at least not right now, which is good in the short term. But we'll see if that, we'll see if that changes under political pressure anytime soon. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I can't really speak for Alito because I think Alito is kind of crazy. Um, that's, that's kind of, that's really all I have to say on the issue. I don't really know. Um, you know, I can't stop him from kind of speaking out his wildly conservative ideas. So if he wants to do that, I guess it's a free country. He has the right to, but what He's do you the think? Worst. He's the worst. Than me. Well, there's the, there's a bigger problem than just the actual justices, and that's Leonard freaking Leo. Actually, I think he's gone now, but he's the one who runs the Federalist Society. And he, basically every Republican president has to get the Federalist Society's stamp of approval um, for every Supreme Court justice. Uh, or every just, or every judge throughout all the levels, right? Um, and when you have this society backed by big money donors re- or having being the final say over whatever ju- judicial appointee you make how can you how can those appointees not be biased right um and how can you expect them not to make decisions for those big money corporations that 
um, got them to where they are. So it's a we have to get money out of the judicial system. The Federalist Society has made every Supreme Court pick, pretty much every, they've made 49 out of 51 appointees on the federal courts for Trump. Um, and we have to get the Federalist Society out of the judicial system. It's getting, it's just poisoning our system full of money where there should be none. Yep. Especially with the Supreme Court where, one, it's technically a nonpartisan position, and two, you're up, supposed to uphold the Constitution. Like, I don't think, the big money, the big money is no place in that, in my opinion. I'm sure Cole agrees. But, yeah, with that, I think we are going to move on to the next stage of our broadcast, and we're going to bring in our special guest. Awesome. All right. So with all of this, we've just been talking about how our system is broken, gerrymandering, Federalist Society. It's all just super, um, it's all super stressful for us to know all these things and not be able to do anything about it. But um, we're now going to talk about some ways that you can help. And this is where we have a very special guest, Ben Carroll, Jr. at Head Royce, who heroically braved COVID worked the polls, counted our votes. Um, ben, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Um, I did work at the polls for 47 hours over four days. Um, and it's not a very exciting experience, to be honest. Um, I, myself, had a few anecdotes that were kind of like, not necessarily bright spots because they weren't uh, positive things, but they provided some excitement for my time there. But Overall, just a normal day at the polls, my job was to print out paper ballots if people would like to, because um, they're voting on touch screens right now. So if people wanted to print out paper ballots, they'd come over to my like stand with a printer, and I would print them out a ballot. And like Monday and Sunday, which were the two slowest days, I think I printed out like two ballots each of those days over like 24 hours of working or something. How did you fill that, that space? Like, what what did you do just sitting there? At the, didn't you not allowed to have your phone at the polling No, stations? so my polling station actually had, I think, four other high schoolers there, one of whom, Della Reichel, um, member of Xbox. And uh, there was at my, like, my stand where I had the printer and I'd print out ballots. There's, like, it's a two-person stand. It's a really easy job. I don't know why you need two people. But there was a senior from Oakland Tech, and she was pretty cool. So... A lot of like eight ball pool on the iMessages apps, um, oh, nice. cup pong, stuff like that. And then just a lot of kind of like sitting and staring off into blank space, to be honest. Um, yeah, we were like begging for people to print out their ballots. And by the end of it, um, just provided some something to do. I was, so what, did you feel like you were making a difference in our democracy? Did it, was it a special feeling? Even just walking in on the first day, um, what did it, did, did you feel like any sort of gravity yeah. in your situation? I mean, so everyone kind of, everyone working there definitely felt like they were, you know, like doing their civic duty and supporting democracy. So everyone had a very like positive attitude, which felt good. But like when you print out like, I don't know, 30 ballots over four days, you don't <laughs> feel like you're making a huge impact. And I think working at the polls itself isn't like the greatest form of political activism. It's more like almost kind of like being a public servant, if anything, more than actually making an impact politically. Um, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't too bad. I felt like at the end I did make a positive impact, um, even though it was small. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty boring, but yeah. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you 
stepped up. We need people to do these jobs, obviously. So thank you again for doing that. Um, I do want to ask you about some of the other people you encountered while working at the polls. I've heard off off the podcast, I've heard a couple of interesting stories. So I'd love for you to elaborate, especially yeah. on one character. Yeah, yeah. No, so there's this guy um, working at my polling station, and there's only like maybe 15, 20, like 15 workers there, right? Um, and you'd expect the people who work at a polling station usually to be like left-leaning, um, especially because getting out and voting is what put Trump out of office. Um, so this guy, he's sitting like six, he has the same job as I do, and there's two different printers, and he's sitting like, yeah, six feet away from me at a table next to me. And he never, he doesn't wear his mask very often. He like has it below his nose. He'll come back from his break and it's just not on. A pet peeve for me. That's. Yeah, I know. It's annoying, man. Mm -hmm. And then he like, they had these almost like hazmat suits for people who were like really worried about COVID to wear. And he like comes up to us and he's like, at what point do you draw the line? I mean, this is ridiculous. And they're like, yeah, I mean. (laughs) Sounds like a Lido. (laughs) (laughs) And like, so me the senior at Oakland Tech who was working next to me and Della were like, okay, so what's this guy's like political standing? And she thought you could look people up to see if they were registered with a party. And I was like, okay, that works. So I looked him up on my phone, looked up his name and there's like a Fox News headline and it's Vallejo man booked for making terrorist threats. (laughs) And like, you have to understand, I, this dude's right next to me. And it's like, they have his mug shot. And that, like, a sense of kind of almost like like a adrenaline rush went through me. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going on here? So I read this story, and this guy was at this Vallejo motel. And he was in the parking lot, like, swinging a hammer around or something. And he walked up to this person in their car, and it was like, had a wooden board and was like threatening to kill them with the board. He just walked up to this dude and started threatening to kill him. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy calls the cops, as one would probably do in that situation, and the, um, the terrorist person locked himself in the motel room. And the cops come, try to get him out of the motel room. He's stuck in there and they can't get him out. And he's on some pretty intense drugs as well, um, as the, it later came out. So the cops can't get him out, so they call a SWAT team in. And the SWAT team isn't getting him out. They have to get a search and arrest warrant, and they start firing in tear gas, like through the windows of his motel room to get him out. And he finally comes out, and they get him, you know, handcuff him. He goes to a prison in, like, Texas or something like that for, I think, like, the actual charges were... Like, I think you can go to prison for something, like, threatening, like, some sort of terrorist thing, and having methamphetamine outside of Alameda County. <laughs> Except now, not in Oregon. They've banned yeah, all they drugs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. yeah they legalized yeah, all drugs. Legally, isn't it? Legalized all yeah. drugs. And then I guess he somehow ended up at a polling station in the Oakland Hills, so... Yeah. It just... It was weird. <laughs> Two things jump out to me in that story. First... The actual arrest, how police use tear gas as the last resort against a terrorist, yeah, like the first resort light. against protesters. Oh, yeah. I'm light, yeah. um, <laughs> so that's a breakdown of the policing in America. 
But then a breakdown of just common sense in America is how do you let a convicted terrorist threater, I guess, I don't know how you put it, but how do you let that person be work in our democracy? Yeah, how is that even possible? That's a good question. Why, why is he allowed to work? Yes, but, I don't mean I don't think there's any real form of like a background check or I mean you just need to look up this guy's name, man. Like just this <laughs> uh, one layer of like check and you can see that he is not fit to work in like a democratic situation. It's yeah, I mean I guess they just don't have any form of like vetting people, which is crazy to me. Um some of the teenagers thought he was like Cause, so this guy actually also has a YouTube channel, or he's featured on some like you know white thing. nationalist YouTube channel, and he tries to be like one of those far right streamers or YouTubers who will go to Biden rallies and like argue people and like put their cameras in their face, almost like a like a Ben Shapiro or someone, and try to like trap them. But this dude is like not very articulate. He's not a smart person at all. And it's just these, like, I watch one of these videos, and it's just these, like, skater kids in San Jose just, like, destroying him in debates. And it's like, come on, man. Like, really? Um, but some of the teenagers at my polling station thought he was doing, like, a, a sting operation almost. Because why would this guy be working That was what I was going to ask. Like, why is he, do you really think he's trying to protect democracy or whatever? Like, what, what's his motives for working there? Yeah, I was wondering that same thing. And one thing is he was really on about like rules. And he was really strict about following the rules, except for the mask one. Like the, <laughs> the most the important, important rule. rule he didn't care about. But there was like one guy, so there's these polling, like, I don't even know what they're called, observers, poll observers from each party who will come and like make sure everything is to their standards. And this guy comes, and a big rule, at least for our polling station, I've heard different stuff about other polling stations, is you can't take photos or videos inside of the polling station. And this guy comes, and I'm not sure which, this poll observer comes, I'm not sure which party he's from, and he starts like taking a photo. And this dude like sprints at him, the terrorist guy. He sprints at him, he's like, no, 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 no photos, no photos, no photos. Like, really, man? Like, <laughs> Sounds like he was on... Some methamphetamine yeah, there, too. Yeah, we lost something. <laughs> I mean, it just, it blew me away because, I mean, I'm definitely living in the Bay Area and being a part of the Headwears community and just my family and my family friends. My family is very left-leaning. Um, I don't really encounter people with his type of political views. Um, so it's definitely like a, a breach of the bubble to go out and meet someone like that. Well, even if you lived in, like, a Republican part of California, I don't know how many yeah, I mean, terrorists, terrorists you, yeah, exactly. you would meet. Exactly, because even more than just being, like, a conservative Trump guy, he's, like, off the spectrum, man. He's a terrorist. Well, speaking of domestic terrorism, Trump supporters, <laughs> I mean, I mean, those two go hand in hand. I, to all the Trump supporters listening, that's not a shot at you. Just some a quip about people in Texas, because... They literally hit a Biden bus oh, with their cars to block them from oh, going to a rally in Texas before the election. Um, and obviously, it didn't make a huge difference, but like that is shot. And the police came and they did nothing. Like, how is this even possible? I thought the FBI was getting involved. It's they have to because that is terror. That is yeah. violence 
to achieve a political means, which is terrorism. Also for the other people, I saw I saw the video, but also for like the other people driving who weren't affiliated, like probably affected them too. Very dangerous, obviously motivated by something or rather, but hopefully it'll get resolved. That I mean, it's shocking. It's really, really shocking. But um, another way to get involved to make sure our democracy isn't ruined by terrorists, um, terrorists, I guess. Uh, Taylor, you worked on a campaign. Burning. I did, I did. Um, in early 2019, when the Democratic primaries were going on, I obviously worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign. I've been an outspoken supporter of Bernie on this podcast, so that shouldn't have come as a surprise to no one. But but yeah, um, I can talk about a little bit of how, how I got involved. Um, I started off doing like text banking and things like that. Um, but obviously, just like you hop on kind of a website that tells you everything you need to do. And then you use you don't use your phone, you use the app through this and you just get in touch with random people and you kind of send them the same automated message, um, try to get them, get them to vote. It's very interesting. I did First, I did a lot in the Bay Area, and then I got assigned. You can get assigned like uh, shifts who people didn't pick up. So I got did like Illinois after, um, and the California people. I got a lot of yes, I like Bernie, and a lot of like no, and because you have to you have to take everything into detail, like you have to report everything. So there's a lot of yes, Bernie, and there's a lot of no. I'm supporting a moderate candidate like Buttigieg or something. Um, but no one was being like, I, I no, rarely would anyone like kind of go off and be like, screw you. Like you're a communist, all that stuff. Um, a lot of nice people, like I'll vote for Bernie if he makes the general election and not supporting him in the primary or whatever. Then you go to Illinois, and that is completely different. You think of Illinois as a liberal state, but outside of Chicago and some of the college towns, it's pretty conservative down south. Um, and I got a lot of, you're a communist, shut up, a lot of expletives, a lot of screw off, don't text me again, kind of things like that. I don't, there were only a few people who supported Bernie, which maybe that's why I lost Illinois. I don't know. So that was a very interesting experience, but it felt good because a lot of people, it kind of, kind of, yeah, it kind of exposed me to the work of text banking and exposed me to how people were thinking um, aside from the polls. Um, and then also my second, second way I got involved is a few days before Super Tuesday. This was about a week before COVID. So kind of the la one of the last times we actually got to do something outside. Um, I went and canvassed in a couple of Bay Area neighborhoods um, and that was pretty, that was pretty awesome too. Um, no terrorists. I didn't canvass any terrorists, luckily. <laughs> There's just a lot of left-leaning folks. Um, but a lot of people weren't home, obviously. I probably only talked to a few dozen people, um, not like thousands, like you might think. But yeah, it was very interesting. I got a couple people to say, like I got a couple people who were undecided. I convinced them to vote for Bernie with a couple of my friends, which is an awesome experience overall. And provided it's safe, uh, ever safe again, I would highly recommend if you have a candidate you support, go on Canva for canvas for them you can't beat face-to-face -face interaction so what did you say to convince them the undecided people what was your what was your main go-to argument so it really depends because you ask the people you ask the people like who are you supporting blah 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 if you say i don't know you ask what's the biggest issue to you um so and and then you kind of go off that like i think someone said immigrant someone said immigration so i talked about like daca and dreamers and things like that and, and like the family separation which was obviously going on at the time um, I talked about all those things. Um, so I think that was pretty effective. I'm trying to think. Someone, I think someone mentioned healthcare, um, education, I think was something. So you really, it, you really, it's up to, it's kind of what their main issues are and you kind of tailor it to that. That's, I mean, I, you always hear about how you can never convince undecided people um, to That's vote one way, but I guess, I guess that proves evidence that 
uh, that's not necessarily true. I mean, you never know if they actually go and do it, but they say they, they say that they commit. If you commit there, like, I don't know. I think that's pretty damning. That's like a real impact, though. Like, making someone who wasn't going to vote or who's going to vote for another candidate, like, vote for the person you support, like, that has to feel good. Yeah, it definitely did feel good. Because that's really, like, the most you can do. I mean, yeah, with yeah. phone banking, too, text banking, and going, like, face-to-face to the doors, like, I don't know. I did, I wrote some postcards, um, but I really, like, I wanted to do that uh, in-person stuff yeah. and, like, going around neighborhoods in Oakland. But, yeah, that's it's awesome. It's definitely, it's definitely awesome. Hopefully, if COVID ever goes away, we can get out there more and do it. But Bernie did win California, so yeah. I was very proud of that, even though Super Tuesday was overall not very good for him. So it was very awesome. But, yeah, Cole, I know Cole was also involved in volunteering and activism in some way, and in terms of phone banking before the general election. So, Cole, I'd love to hear about your experience as well. Well, yeah, I was a little late to the party, I have to say. I phone banked the weekend before the election um, back in my former home state of Wisconsin and uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, two very contrasting uh, experiences with the two different states, Wisconsin. Um, you hear about Midwest nice. They were all super polite. I got so many pickups. Um, they were all just awesome. Even the Trump supporters that I called were just nice and polite, and they were like, oh, I want to hear your argument, um, except in a Midwestern accent. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so they were all nice, but the Pennsylvania, oh, God, even the Democrats were hostile to me. They were like, why are you calling me? How did you get this number? And then, and then, the, um, and then I got a lot of F off Demi, from the Trumpers and um, just just a lot of just hostile people in Pennsylvania. And I'm like, what's going on here in Pennsylvania? But it was a great experience, especially in Wisconsin, because that was a really close state. And um, obviously I didn't call 20,000 people, but our the service that I used was calling a lot of people. Um, so, I, I kind of want to take a little bit of credit for that Wisconsin victory with such a small margin because, um, yeah, the Wisconsin, Wisconsin it was, I, was, I was glad to see Wisconsin flip back to blue, especially after um, all the hard work I did yeah. on that front. That's awesome. I have two, I have two questions for you. First, um, did kind of your experience in Pennsylvania affect your predictions at all? Probably. Probably they, they probably did. Did you think Pennsylvania was going to go red? <laughs> yeah, I thought I actually thought Wisconsin was going to go red too. But um, yeah, that was actually before I found banked in Wisconsin. Um, but uh, yeah, I probably swayed my prediction a little bit in Pennsylvania. Uh, I just I couldn't. I thought that Philly they w- wouldn't come out and vote in Philly. That was the main thing because a lot of Philly numbers that I called, they were like. I can't get to the polls or that kind of stuff. And I was like, after the Philadelphia, after the Pennsylvania phone banking, I was like, just depressed. I was like, oh God, four more years. Here we are, 12 more years, here we go. You never know with Trump. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that, that was kind of getting on the second thing I was gonna ask you. I was gonna ask, when you phone bank, did you kind of know what area the people who you were calling were living in? Yeah, so it usually pops up on the screen which area it does. And depending, the Philadelphia service, it, or I mean the Pennsylvania service, it popped up all this info, age, um, gender, uh, all this type of stuff. 
uh, nearest polling location, so you had it right there to give to them. Wisconsin, it gave you uh, their name, address, that all this type of stuff, um, where they lived also. So, uh, yeah, and the, part of the script that I used was like, hi, my name is Cole, and I'm a volunteer in uh, whatever their town was. So I kind of had to insert that into the um, discussion. So, yeah, overall, it was just a really good experience to, one, not only help get out the vote, but two, also um, to work on my speaking skills with people that I am not familiar with. Um, so I think I got, I improved my own life on two fronts, on the political front and on the personal uh, front as well. I have one more question real quick for you. That's kind of a question that you asked me, which is like, if you get someone who's undecided, what do you use to convince them? Well, I I think I went, I only got two or three people that were actually undecided. And each time I kind of used the same argument almost, which was uh, this, I don't know, which I actually didn't ask them which issues they supported the most because um, I would just like, look, this is why I support Joe Biden. And I went into like the whole you can't um, say that your life isn't more, uh, or each party isn't more hostile to each other. There isn't more division in America than there was before. And you could blame Trump for that. You could blame Democrats for that. You can blame any party for that. But it, the fact of the matter is that it happened under Trump's administration. And then I believe that Trump uh, poured fire or poured gasoline on that fire and deserves at least some of the blame for. Uh, the craziness of this world and um, that I long for the just kind of ho-hum life of politics that was back in the Obama administration. Do they give you like what your talking point should be or is that up to you? For the undecideds, it was kind of up to us. They were just like, voice your uh, beliefs. That's I think that's what they wrote on it. Um, so... I kind of came up with that. That's my kind of like overall art. That's my go-to like overall argument for Joe Biden when I'm not going to get into the like nitty gritty of right. policy and that kind of stuff. Because if you do that, you get, you lose people yeah. like that. Um, so uh, yeah, that was, that was my, um, it wasn't in my script, but it was, it was just kind of like do, do what you right. feel is right there. Did you get called a communist at all? I got I got called no I didn't get called communist commie or communist anything like that I said I got called demi earlier, <laughs> um, um, some dude said I had a pathetic life and I should get a real job, um, that uh, if some person was like, uh, uh, yeah another person said you should get a life or go go to school get a job that kind of stuff. Oh. Um, so, and in my defense, I did call a lot of people at work, so right. that right. was probably a little stressful for them, but yeah. I mean, I'm always nice to telemarketers. I'm going to be honest. I, if the telemarketer calls me and I pick up, I'm always like polite about it. I'm not like, screw off yeah. telemarketer, telly, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, that was my experience, uh, were people polite at the polls? Yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's like it's really good people watching experience, is what my parents are saying. Like you get to see definitely some characters. I mean, 
there was a lot of people who were, you can tell, I felt like who they were voting for a lot of times, because people were like, oh, it's great to see the youth out here, like, doing your civic duty, go for yeah. it, nice. And like, <laughs> I mean, that was like, honestly, a good boost of confidence, not even confidence, but just like, we, it was so dull there that, that like gave us something. Made you feel good. Feel good about it, yeah. Um, and then there were some people who just kind of, you know, just a normal person. Like, they just go vote, didn't really acknowledge anything. There wasn't any hostile people at the polls, which I don't think you'd really expect. There was one lady who, because in the past you could, like, watch your ballot get scanned, like, right there. But they took that out this time, so you just, like, drop it in a box. There was one lady who was really pissed about that. But um, other than that, I mean, the most hostile person was probably the guy working at the polls, <laughs> to be honest. So... No, no hostile voters. Would you do it again? Would you, or would you uh, try some other type of volunteering in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think I wasn't really doing this for the political activism per se, as much as like, if I was going to, if I was going to go back and say like, how can I make an impact on this election? I don't think it'd be working at the polls. I mean, one benefit of working at the polls is I did get paid. Um, which is nice to have a little money in the pocket, but I think, I don't know if I'd do it again. I feel like if I do, I'd dedicate more time to phone banking and writing postcards and yeah, even going door to door, obviously COVID, but, um, yeah. Absolutely. And there's definitely some more opportunities coming up because we have two big elections in January, Georgia runoffs, determining the... Uh, the control, of the, control of the Senate, yeah. It's huge. I mean, it's, it's like such a big deal. Yeah. Exactly. It might even be bigger than the last election that yeah. we just had. First, I want to hear you guys' predictions, and then we can get into what you got, what um, anyone can do to help. I think, I think it's going to be split. I don't think the Democrats mm-hmm. get this, to be honest. I think, which sucks. I mean, I just, I don't think because... The one, is it Ossoff? Yeah. He, so the person he was running against, the Republican candidate, I don't know their name. Purdue. Purdue, Purdue, right, right. He got, what, 49.7% or something of the votes? Like, that's so close to 50, man. That just scared me. I don't think, I mean, maybe people will, like, really phone bank and really do a lot of political activism and get out the vote, but I don't think the Democrats are going to get votes. Sadly. Interesting. I'm interested in your split prediction because for me, I don't know if people will vote yeah. Democrat or Republican. I just don't know because yeah. it'll be on the same ballot, I think. Yeah. So um, it's hard for me to see, for me, at least split, but I agree with you that I don't know if Democrats. Do you think it's going to go both Republican? Or yeah, both I think Democrat? it's going both Republican uh, just due to historical trends and just. I mean, Georgia went blue this election, but I mean, it's still Georgia, right, yeah. and it's still not some liberal hotbed. I mean, were people voting for one of them and not the other? Because if you look at like the results, right, one was significantly yeah. blue, and the other was a little bit. Well, more I know red. the well, special war- one. The special one yes. had like a bunch of different candidates. It had the Kelly Loeffler, the incumbent senator. There was also right. some Congress person who ran, and then there were a lot of Democrats too. So it was very split. I don't, I don't know if you tallied up what it looks like actually. Right. Yeah, I, I haven't done that, but it I think both are going to come down to one or two percentage points. Yeah. Maybe Stacey Abrams can work her magic again in Georgia. I mean, I keep 
heaping praise on her on this podcast because yeah. she deserves it. She's work. done a really good job. But um, uh, what are you, what what are you gonna do for uh, to help this election, Tilla? And what oh, what's, what well, do you think? Well, gonna first, happen? I, I should say my predictions probably. I didn't say that. Um, which I, I don't know. I want to say that the Democrats can take it back because Purdue didn't get the majority. So in reality, there's libertarians out there who you could flip. I don't know if you flip all of them, but. Yeah, I have no, I have no idea. I'd like it to go Democrat. I think Raphael Warnock has a better chance because Kelly Loeffler is a lot more controversial, like with her sock trading and things like that. So if one were to flip, I think it'd be her seat. But I don't know about the second one. But you know, we as you said, we can, we can do a lot even living in California. So I'm hope I'm probably hoping to phone bank at some point in the weeks or in the coming weeks before the election. Um, I haven't started yet. I have college apps obviously, but closer to the date, I will definitely try to get involved in phone banking. Um, I actually probably need to research a little bit. I know Fair Fight, I think Fair Fight Action, which is like kind of deals with like voting rights and things like that. I think they have a lot of phone banking opportunities. So I'll probably do that. But are either of you planning to do anything? I mean, yeah, I think I'm definitely going to phone bank. It's it's in January, right? That's yeah. When the runoffs are. Um, yeah, I mean, I think phone banking for Hedroy students, at least, uh, is probably the best thing you can do right now for those runoffs. Definitely, I think I'll hop in the phone bank. I would say if you could spare it, make a donation. But um, what we've seen for this last election cycle is that donations don't always equate success. Democrats just blew Republicans out of the water fundraise, like broke every single, smashed every single record of fundraising there was in House races, Senate races, especially Senate races, presidential. Biden raised the most of any candidate, and it's still that clearly didn't dictate success on all levels. So, um, yeah, I think I think phone banking, getting out the vote is the best way you can help um, in Georgia. And as on the fundraising front, I think it's better to invest in places, not people. That's what yeah. Doug Jones said from Alabama, um, that we should get more Stacey Abrams on the ground um, in other places, invest in their communities, and just have a candidate that comes out of that instead of having a candidate come in and investing in the, that candidate and hoping that the right. region will warm up to them because clearly that strategy doesn't work. Anymore. I know. I don't know if you all saw it, but Andrew Yang has gone to Georgia to help in the fight to take it back. He's there in Georgia on the ground right now, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and also, I will add that something we didn't talk about is that. There's a whole, there's a, albeit it's probably small, there's a few thousand people who will be turning 18 before January who will be eligible to vote in it. And I, I don't know, maybe call me crazy, but that could be, that could make some sort of a difference. I don't know how many people it is, but. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I saw that recently, yeah. So they can vote if they turn 18 by January 5th or whatever. Maybe. That's crazy, actually. What a lucky few people. <laughs> Especially since you can't even vote. In the primaries, and you're 17 now in California. That prop yeah, failed. Prop Check failed. out our previous episode of Mr. Schneider. Um, but this this election is still not over. This last one that we did is still not over because no one's conceded, and Trump is hiding out in his basement, just like in he <laughs> in his bunker, just like he accused Biden of doing earlier. Um, and they've set up a voter fraud hotline, which has been just a magnet for TikTok calls and um, just everything. So your reaction to Trump's reaction? I mean, like, 
Did anyone not expect this, to be honest? Like, he's been hinting that he wasn't going to concede the election for months when he started discounting or discrediting USPS. Um, like, I expected this to happen. Um, I mean, it's just like, there's, there's nothing you can do right now. You just have to watch him be an idiot. Like, and it's annoying because so many Republicans still support him. It's interesting to see which, like, uh, George W. Bush came out, right, and congratulated Biden. But then there's so many people still backing Trump, and it's just like, come on. Like, think beyond your own personal party interest for, like, one exactly. minute and just look at how stupid he's being. Like, that was a good move by Bush. I'm still not going to let him off the hook because he was the worst <laughs> before Trump. Yeah, but no way. And now yeah. with Trump, I'm sure he's just like, oh, thank God, there's someone worse well, than he me. Didn't vote, he didn't vote for Trump both times, I know. Yeah, but still. So he, th- that doesn't excuse his war crime. But that do- that doesn't <laughs> excuse just his yeah. Just doesn't excuse any the deregulation, even though Clinton had a part of that. But um, yeah, Bush. I'm not letting Bush off the hook. But that was a good move by him, I think. Yeah. Mm, and also, I think I think that a couple of Repo- a lot of Rep- like high ranking Republicans are starting to kind of realize that it's kind of over for Trump. I know I saw an article. I can't source it completely, but there are a few sent there are five senators who came out and said that Biden should be included in the daily security briefings, which seems to signal that they're moving toward the potential transition. Because obviously, why would they include him in those trans in those meetings if he wasn't he didn't win the presidency? So I know like Chuck Grassley, Ben Sasse were two of the people in there. Those are the ones I remember. Um, so I think people are starting to realize. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are still backing Trump, but like Ben said, what else? What else did you expect? Right? Well. I want to take this opportunity to disprove the only quote-unquote evidence Republicans have again of voter fraud. And if you've ever watched the, the dumbasses like Ben Shapiro or Steven Crowder, they've just been raging on this Benford's Law, okay? Benford's Law, so um, as proof of voter fraud. So when you have lots of a huge range of data, uh, different data sets, um, you there's there's a distribution of the first digit of those numbers and usually you get ones more than you get nines and it's kind of like a gradual slope down and trump's votes follow that law of uh that distribution but biden has this huge spike in the middle and it doesn't follow that law at all but like let's look at the data they use so benford's law only applies over large magnitudes of numbers so like from a hundred you have to have numbers in the hundreds and the numbers in the Ten hundred thousands, right, to make it work. Now they use precincts um, to, to as their data, right, which is good to accumulate a lot of data. But all those precincts have about like five hundred to a thousand people in them in each precinct, right? So if Biden gets eighty percent of that vote, then that's about like three hundred and eighty or so votes or four hundred votes. Um, that he would get on average in each of the precincts. And obviously 300 or 400 starts at threes and fours, and then that would leave 100 for Trump, which starts with ones, right? So if that follows, the Trump's would follow the Benford's curve, but Biden would have a higher majority of threes and fours to start um, his vote totals just by virtue of the size of the, um, the, size of the precincts. So that is my... Um, Debunked. Debunked right there. Yeah, get right, conservatives. <laughs> Tell them, Cole. Yeah. Exactly. 
well, they have no evidence have whatsoever. But, um, but what might be more scary than this election is this highly renowned scientist. They say he's very exceptional. He's super highly cited. His name is Peter Turchin. He's a professor also at, um, I think it's UConn or mm -hmm. maybe University of Pennsylvania. One of those. He just came out with this huge prediction for the next decade. And UConn is right. Yeah, UConn. So he came out with this prediction of what the next 10 years will look like for our country. And the scary thing is he made a prediction in 2010 about the next decade. It was spot on, especially about the events of 2020. He predicted these racial and social tensions that have bubbled to the surface in the year 2020. Obviously, he didn't predict a pandemic because that's that would Bill be Nostradamus, right? Um, I guess, yeah, he did. Bill Gates did, huh? But um, this dude, Peter Turchin, he analyzes these social trends. And um, what he predicted for the next 10 years is looking really bleak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, it is. Like, it's looking very. It's looking very bleak. Um, I actually have a quote here that says, "He predicted that political and civil unrest in the United States would continue regardless of the party in power until a leader took action to reduce inequality and improve the social indicators that are tracked in his research." So, here's my here's my pitch. What group slash party wants to take action to reduce inequality and improve social indicators? The, are you gonna say progressive or democrat? Yes, I am. <laughs> but you know, so maybe may, no. I don't. I, I don't know. But well, yeah, it's definitely scary. This guy is pretty pretty damn accurate with the. He already called the social unrest. If his predictions stay true, not looking at a very, exactly bright future. Well, and that bright future is even bleaker. I said a bleak future. It could be a catastrophic future. He said there's anywhere between, at the very best case scenario for the next five to ten years, we'll have a. Um, the civil social unrest of the late 60s, early 70s, when obviously Martin Luther King, um, Malcolm X, a lot of black activists were assassinated, um, and the rise of conservatism. So conservatism Vietnam started. During that time too. Yeah, Vietnam, Vietnam started. And state massacres and things like that. Exactly. We'll have that same type of unrest at the very best in this next decade. At the very worst, he says, I think it's, quote, we'll have a civil war unlike anything the world has ever seen before, which will decimate our whole population in the next 10 years. So we have a lot to look forward to in the next decade. He also said that people entering the workforce, especially us, who are going to enter the workforce in the next decade, are going to just be out of luck, have no place um, in our workforce, will be our college degrees will be worthless because so many people are going to college that this educated ruling class he called it there's so many people with college degrees and not enough college degree level jobs that there's nowhere to put them he compared it to um uh i think he compared it to the united arab emirates um with the with the king's family or yeah the, the king's family and they have so many kids that there's not enough royal positions for those kids to fill. So that every time they make new positions, each person gets a little less power um, from their position. So that's gonna be the same type of um, economic bloating um, that, that's gonna happen in the well, next Well, let decade. me ask, I know this isn't really his field of study, but does, I haven't read a lot of his works, but does he make a, does he have anything on climate change on what the future is looking like for that? He didn't, I don't think he, 
uh, talked about climate change. I know he came from an ecology background, so I'm sure um, at the beginning of his career, he uh, definitely probably thought about that. But I haven't, to be honest, I researched this paper and the papers that are relevant to it. He has an awesome book called Secular Cycles. Um, and uh, I researched that, but obviously I didn't research his early career um, type of stuff. But he says he's unlocked the iron laws that determine social um, social inflection points. And he says that we're headed straight towards one in the 2020s. Agree. And yeah. It's depressing. I know, I know. It's... But he said, he said, if there was a leader that could rectify these inequality, inequalities in society, we'll avoid let's that hope. civil war. Well, let's hope Biden can at least start to do that, you know, the best. But yeah, I think that just about does it. Um, for all those people who've stuck around this far, thank you so much for watching. Ben, Hopefully you're you. not as depressed as I am. Yeah. But, yeah. but Ben, thank you so much for having yeah, on. Thank Tell you for us, having Telling me. us about your experiences. Quick reminder that get involved in Georgia if you believe it's important. It is extremely important. We're kind of deciding the fate of our country for the next four years. So if you can, get involved in Georgia somehow. It doesn't take a lot of effort, only a couple hours. You can make a real difference. So, yeah. Politics in Perspective airs every Monday. Make sure you check Anchor and Spotify um, to listen. And uh, thanks so much for staying to the end. Smile.